and welcome to Polly Pages. Books. <laughs> the podcast where genuine Polly people read the texts that have shaped our community and culture. I'm Claire. And I'm Sebastian. And on this season, we're reading The Ethical Slut, third edition, by Janet Hardy and Dossie Easton. I'll come out when I'm ready. Hey, Sebastian. Hey, Claire. I've just realized something. What's that? We forgot to do... Um, the last section of chapter four, because it was such a long episode, so we should do it now, before we introduce the next chapter. That's a good idea. <laughs> Thank you, I'm smart. You are. Um, before we do that, where are you? I'm on my couch, in Boston. Oh my god, same. No way. <gasps> there you are! <laughs> this is going to make much more sense when we're not in the same place. Yes. Um, so, the last subsection of chapter four is called Black and Poly. Um, and obviously that's talking about the intersection between people of colour and the polyamorous community. Um, mm-hmm. And it's basically an excerpt from um, Love, colon, A Black Love Re- Revolution, written by Ron and Lisa Young, who are the co-founders of an online uh, black and Polly support group called blackandpolly.org. It's black and Polly, all one word, dot org, for anyone who wants to go check it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually looked, I don't think this book has been published. Like, I know it says that it's upcoming, mm. but I, I went to try and find it because I wanted to order it, and mm. it wasn't there. So um, we'll maybe add it in the notes if we find it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll try and do that. It's yeah, a good idea. Um, but... So, yeah, what did you think of this excerpt from the book? Um... I mean, I think it's it's interesting. It's important to remember, like, how all these different intersections affect things, especially things that are not part of my, like, experiences that I have no conception of when I when I think about these things, because I'm not Black. So I'm not part of that community. So I, it it's it not readily apparent to me until reading this and looking into it in other ways. And I've seen this website and some podcasts before. But, like, the unique situation, it it creates to be black and poly culturally and yeah. based on societies. So the, for, for the listeners, the context of this is um, this excerpt is only about half a page long and it talks mm-hmm. about why polyamory, like what polyamory might add to mm-hmm. a black person's experience. Um, again, this is written by black, um, black by a black couple. Um, and so it's really talking about the, the experience of being black which I think is a very American experience of being black, obviously, because it's talking mm-hmm. a lot about Jim Crow laws and about um, mass incarceration and slavery, which obviously exist in some way um, in many countries, but these are very specific American references. Um, and how, as a black person, when you're in a system that's constantly trying to systematically pull you apart from your community and your culture, um, you don't necessarily have enough time to settle into, like, well, they say settle into each other, um, but I think it's more than that. I think it's about uh, like the whole culture and the whole way that you, the, the, um, a black person in that situation might feel according to this excerpt is that there needs to be strong boundaries to protect you from harm. And you kind of almost end up self-objectifying, like internalizing some of that, mm-hmm. those boundaries that have been set up to separate you from each other. And you make those walls yourself. And polyamory allows you a space to define yourself, which I thought was mm. like the way that the way that, that it's being conceived in this chapter is that poly is a way to remedy some of the harm that has been done mm. whilst being realistic about the damage that that's wrought. So um, I like it. it says, we don't want to be your Mandingo warriors, <laughs> Nubian princesses. 
um, or just come to attend your play parties. We want to be respected as equals when it comes to something real, polyamorous and tangible. We see the love that is abundant within the community and sometimes we feel that love reaching out to include us. But there is still a huge divide between us and the white poly, poly communities. How do we bridge that gap? And we're not going to answer that question here because it would be super long. So I've just, I'd like to flag for everyone to go and check out another podcast called Normalizing Non-Monogamy. And in episode 38, they have Crystal, who's one of the senior editors of blackandpoly.org, um, who talks a lot about her experience as a black woman um, who mm -hmm. has been in consensually non-monogamous um, situations. Cool. So check it out. Check it out. All right. Did you want to introduce this episode formally? Yes. So now that we've finished our last episode in this episode, <laughs> this episode, <laughs> yeah. we're going to be talking about chapter five, which is about battling sex negativity. Um, and like we said, this is a pretty short chapter, but it touches on a lot of sort of big things in here. Mm -hmm. we'll, um, we'll still find a way of talking. About we'll still it find now. a way to, to <laughs> talk for 50 minutes. I'm sure we'll manage. Um, and so the, the start of this chapter is talking about the fact that um, the world is a dangerous place. Like people, people can respond pretty aggressively to, to things that they don't understand or disagree with, such as non-monogamy. Mm -hmm. And especially for big cultural things that are really established, people can have really strong actions against that. And there's also a lot of sort of cultural things that indirectly sort of battle polyamory or non-monogamy or anything or else. at least make it hard or make it hard or make you feel and that's kind of what the whole negative about, about it yeah <laughs> like it's really difficult yeah here's why and here's how to right. try and do better i guess um and the start of it though isn't even the specifics of non-monogamy but it's it's about you know they talk about anti-sex crusaders and and just the sort of societal pressure against sex and yeah. sluttiness the, the bit that ding ding, ding, ding. Quotes. the um, bit that stuck out to me was um that lots of things exist to quote make loving dangerous for women mm -hmm, including right. like a, well including yeah. outlawing birth control or abortion um which obviously is a health risk and public health concern mm. um no matter how you no matter no matter how you think yeah. about ac like the access that you should be having right. outlawing it it like statistically always leads right. to back alley abortions and loads of unwanted pregnancies and has yeah. knock on effects in terms of like, yeah. I don't know. It also talks about things like we, you know, in a lot of parts of the States, there's, there is no safe sex education. There's sex education is basically abstinence education. And yeah. So it, again, it, that's a really American thing because we don't yeah. have that in, in right. England. Right. And it's um, not all through the U S like the, where I grew up, I mean, I've grown up in pretty liberal areas. You've got, to some degree, a, a spectrum. And I'm a little biased because my mother is a health practitioner. And so I've got a much more open access to it. Mm. Um, but, you know, that varies so much. It might shock the listeners, but we are very sex positive. <laughs> and, and really do think that access to sex information on the schools, yeah. um, in schools, should be a must. Um, um, so, yeah, I mean, it's if, if society is already against just sex. having sex <laughs> then how are they going to react to you you wanting to have sex with multiple people how dare you um and it even says making like being a slut having quote unquote ding ding slut yeah. i.e having multiple sexual partners makes you kind of f almost fair game for violence yeah. um you're seen as like 
oh, well, you know, you're having multiple sex partners, so you're bound to get some kind yeah. of, like, HIV or STI. Um, uh, it talks a lot about... They, talk, they make some examples here about victim blaming, um, which I tied... I, I made a note on the side here. It links to what we talked about in the last episode about the gay panic defense. One of the quotes mm-hmm. they had was, you look so queer, no wonder that gang decided to beat you up. Yeah, um, also we should probably say right now there is a trigger warning for a lot of this... Um, of this, well, the whole podcast <laughs> actually, yeah. um, we do we do end up talking uh, in passing about things like traumatic sexual experiences or statistics to do with rape or assault. So if any of that bothers you, we we should be better at trigger warning it in future episodes. We're sorry. Yeah. Okay, but they move on from that um, and talking about the ways that society will make it difficult for you, and then they talk also about. How much do we internalize that? What is, like, what do we, what do they call it here? Um, horizontal hostility. When you, even though you act, you like, actively, consciously mm. reject that, and you feel like there should be sex positive policies and access should be made of made available available. Mm. <laughs> I can't say that word for abortion. Um, you still end up judging your friends a little bit, like being like, oh, well, she's quite slutty, or like, oh, yeah. well, she's kind of a prude, yeah. or, yeah. Or I, even, and I, uh, even judging yourself. Yeah. I by mean, those those internalized standards. I mean, I think it's very telling at the top here. It says, what is my experience of oppression? and How does it affect me? Who do I have to lie to in my life? What are my closets? And actually, those are questions that I think we don't ask ourselves that much. We just... Um, I mean, we don't ever necessarily take and do this work in ourselves to break down those. So I think you're right, judging ourselves as well mm-hmm. for for something that even on like the, socially we're not meant to be doing, yeah. but also um, that we've we've chosen to do anyway, and then we kind of blame ourselves for it. We end up having yeah. tertiary experiences of emotions. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Okay, but. I think the this is then when we get into the gristle of it. Do you have anything else to say about judging yourself? Um, nothing substantial, really, that needs to be said beyond what we said already. Okay. So the the meat of this of this episode, I guess, is about what they call here a harsh world. Mm-hmm. It's the the realities of of saying it is really difficult. There. What does that mean for you as a poly person um, mm-hmm. or a, a uh, someone that's in a consensually non-monogamous situation, um, we, as well as as um, Janet and Darcy, we recommend caution when you choose to come out, and I think that's what we're going to talk about now. Right, you can't untell. Yeah, that was a big thing that I underlined. Oh, me too. You can't untell, um, and yeah, the reality is that. No matter what you you know, people will react how they're going to react, and once it's out there, it's yeah. out there, and it can have a lot of consequences. I mean, they I've say seen... they kind of very quickly go over like landlords might be reluctant to rent mm-hmm. to you. Um, some rental agreements will even still include like immoral behavior bias, and um, when you're out in the workplace, you might experience like loss of clients or loss of even jobs. Yeah, um, I've seen some stories like that. Yeah. Yeah. I saw a story recently on Reddit, of all places. 
Oh my god, shocker. Sorry, the subreddit of the polyamory subreddit is, is a must checker. Um no, but it was somebody who like had worked in a in a restaurant for years and years and years and was like managing it and doing stuff and was consensually non monogamous and had a wife and a partner who worked at with them. Um and they tried to get a promotion and basically instead the managers like called them out and said, Well, we don't appreciate this because people see you around with both of these women and we know them and we don't like it. And then they ended up leaving their job because the workplace was so hostile when they were open about their relationship. Um, I mean, you, you're you open at your work. I know that. Yes. We've had that conversation before. I am. Do you want to talk a bit about the experience of of that? You don't have to name the workplace. Probably best not to. <laughs> um, sure. Um, I work in a... I won't say where I work, I guess. That, that might be good. Yeah. Um, but I do work in a place that's pretty... Um, liberal and open-minded and pretty queer queer yeah, that's a good way. I was trying to think if there's a better way to say it. no but it's pretty queer it's, and um, so it's really nice and it, it makes it it's a very easy workplace to be in no matter what your identity is or, or how you live your life um, and when I started working there um, I was only dating Claire at the time and was still relatively new to this and, and being out about this and I wasn't um Except with my family, who will come on to family in another, but wasn't largely out in life. Not that I was specifically not out; I just wasn't really sharing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just sort of came up tangentially. And wait, I think that's an important distinction: is that there is a way of being out where you introduce yourself and be like, "Hi, I'm gay," or "Hi, I'm trans," or "Hi, I need you to know that I'm poly." And that always seemed very from a British point of view, I have to say, very in your face. Mm-hmm. But the other, I think most people just kind of come out because they're not in. Like they're right. not hiding anything. Right. I still resent the fact that you'd have to come out one in, but that's a whole other episode. Right. <laughs> and I think for me, I mean, that's sort of how I've approached it. And I feel lucky that I'm, I'm able to do it that way and feel comfortable to do that. Because it was never like I was in or out. It was just like at some point I felt comfortable with people to start, and to start sharing parts of my life. And I didn't feel like I had to hide the fact that I was had multiple relationships or or anything else about myself. Um, And. um, Well, I, I work in a very different situation and I think that I just want to like backtrack a little bit in that we've listed out some situations that say like, that would make it difficult for you to be out Mm -hmm. in America, Mm -hmm. you know, landlords workplace might not be great, you know, but I live and work usually in places that aren't America, um, mm-hmm. when being out in, in any, uh, not just poly, but also like, let's say if, if I'm dating a woman, um, that is, it's, it's not just a question of like, oh, you might lose your job or your house. It's like, you might lose your life. <laughs> um, so when we're talking about coming out in this situation and in this episode, I think we are talking very much about when it's like physically safe to do so. Right. And then navigating the the barriers and um, reactions that might be negative that, that you come yeah. up against. So yeah, I work um I work in a very different line. I work freelance at the moment, so I can decide who I work with and how much I share with them. Mm-hmm. But um, obviously Google exists, and everyone that would want to hire me could probably pretty easily <laughs> find, find out, out who I am and that I am a vocal poly advocate. Um, they can find my papers on the subject they can find this podcast um i have yet to meet 
with anyone that found that to be like too difficult to work with. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, dating women has sometimes been something that employers have been like, can you not do that while you're in the country? (laughs) Like, can you not date women because you, you makes you a target. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. Like the, Mm -hmm. we, we're talking about coming out like it's a queer specific thing. Um, so I wanted to mention that as well. Okay. What about coming out to your family? Um, I don't know. We've talked about this a little bit before too, but my family is comfortable, obviously. Yeah. Pretty open book. Um, (laughs) I mean, my family is very liberal and very open-minded and very accepting. And I'm actually pretty sure that my mom thought I was gay well before I had considered really? that possibility. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I told you. She, like... It, so, in, in high school, mm-hmm. um, there was... I, w- I went to a pretty small rural high school. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, to the best of my knowledge, at least one, only one openly gay... Was he ruthlessly bullied? No. He was very well accepted. Oh, really? Yeah, it was a pretty... I've later found out that there were several other... They usually are. They usually are. They just weren't out yeah. at that point. Um, But... Very gay, and I think you know we were friends, and I think my mom like had this inkling that I might be, and so she like you know, pushed me to like dye my hair and try to do different things, and oh my god, um, it did take me did about ten. Get, more... Did you get platinum blonde tips? I had frosted tips. <laughs> oh I've god. shown you this picture; it's awful. Um, it exists. <laughs> no, it uh, anyway, but so you know, to me, like coming out to my family, it. I guess I've never really thought about it as as. Okay, but what about coming thing. out as consensually non-monogamous? I guess they're kind of wrapped together in your experience. Right? Yeah, a little bit. I, I mean, I was pretty upfront with my family about it um, before you came to meet them. Like, I just, like, you know, when I told them about them, like, that was one of the things that I was just like, this is this is who I'm dating. This is this is what we're doing. Like, Yeah. So for some contract, like, context, I have met Sebastian's family and you have met my family Indeed. and both of our families have all parts of both our families have met our other partners so we're both very out but I think it's important to note that that was a conversation mm-hmm. um and even when we were deciding to do this podcast we we discussed didn't we whether we should use our real names mm-hmm. because we would be traceable and because um there's something I mean, it's one thing to be out with the people that you know. It's another thing to be out to the world. Mm-hmm. But um, here we I, are. Here we are using our real names. Um, what was the names we were going to use? Was it Bass and Lou? Yeah, we were Bass trying and to... Lou. It was Bass yeah. and Lou. Um, yeah. So uh, just to kind of round off that conversation, I think it's it's we would never we would never tell anyone they have to be out. Yeah, definitely not. But we will live our lives as Janet and Dossie say here. We would urge you to live. Out and proud if you can do so, because it's harder for the world mm. to hate sluts when they see us living happy lives that do no harm to anyone. And yeah. I think that that's what we are doing. Yeah. Um, we're doing. We're doing this out and proud, just like just like we are in real life. Yeah. And um, basically, anyone that has a problem with that doesn't have to interact with us. The world's a big place. Yeah, there's plenty of other people who can. Okay. Do that. So, yeah. So, the next section, did you want to introduce it or shall I? Let me introduce it. Okay, go ahead. The next uh, section is about legal agreements. Um, Oh, my God. That sounds so boring. So intense. (laughs) I mean, it is a little bit boring. It's also kind of interesting. Um, Only you would say it's a bit boring, but it's also really interesting, you nerd. uh, (laughs) I am. 
Um, and, and this is, again, this is really in the context of the U.S., um, which makes sense because Dossie and Janet are both from the U.S., and that's what their experience is, and that's what they can write about. Um, and it looks like they did actually work with a, with a lawyer to talk about some of these legal aspects. Yeah, the lawyer they worked with was Dylan Miles, um, um, who is a, a family lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't find him online for any kind of like follow-up, but um, that's who they used. Um, and what this is talking about, you know, is the, the logistical, legal issues surrounding being ethically non-monogamous, polyamorous, being in multiple relationships, especially long-term, where you start to want to plan things and be involved and be, um, whether married or in some way legally connected for, for different reasons, um, or have children or, or something, like how all of the complications that that's going to raise, like a, a whole other set of barriers that you now run into. Sorry. Yeah, I think you'd have to have... Um... I think I think that they do a really good job of basically being like the short version of this is there is nothing available. We live in a monogamous culture where legal documents, just like everything else, are designed for dyads. They're designed for couples and they're designed to tie two people together forever and ever and ever. So they really should be really difficult to get into and they should be really hard to get out of and they're definitely money made for two people. So if you're doing anything other than that, which we assume you are if you're listening to this podcast, they go through like some tools to consider mm-hmm. but we should state right at the beginning that um none of these will ensure that what you write down is legally binding in the courts they are just ways of expressing your formal desires mm-hmm. in in a clear way so that in the absence of of any sort of malign people maybe they will be followed right. that's the idea right i mean they talk about uh, one of the things they talk about is like people not being able to visit a partner in the hospital because you're not married and how even separate of, of poly issues like for the gay community, mm-hmm. you know, until gay marriage was recognized, like you would have a partner in the hospital and you couldn't visit them because you're not technically a family member. Um, and so now if you're talking about having multiple partners and maybe you're married to one, and but you're in a committed long-term relationship in any way that can pose its own you know, that they technically wouldn't be allowed to because of medical privacy um, and how you have to be really intentional then if you're trying to have a situation that gives everybody the, those rights about having things yeah, so documented they, and available and really thought through. So they talk about going to visit in the hospital. They also talk about child rearing. Mm-hmm. Does that sound bad? Child rearing? Raising children might sound better. <laughs> or um, death, unfortunately, of a partner. Um, or running a business together. Those are mm-hmm. kind of like the four areas that they envision mm-hmm. that you might be mm-hmm. making use of a legal, mm-hmm. um, a legal set of tools um, mm-hmm. so that then long-term partners don't become like penniless or homeless or orphan a child and then goes to like, I don't know, parents or parents I've never right. seen before. Um, and we had a chat about this when we were um, researching this chapter a little bit. It was like, I never, I never considered making any kind of like legal, legally, uh, legally binding. Um, what's the word? Uh, contracts or or whatever. Um, yeah. But also because I'm British, I don't think that I can understand this as well. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what this would look like in the context of the UK. Like, I mean, I imagine some of these things would be the same because they talk about um, kind of two major ways of of saying what you want to do. 
Yeah. Um, one is using your will, mm-hmm. which can be a living will. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you were to go into like PBS or um, into a coma, yeah. your, your living will could, could do mm-hmm. things like who should be the step parent, even if it's not the biological parent, or right. um, who can come and visit. It will not necessarily be legally binding, but you could still use it. And obviously, right. when you, if you were to expire, then having a will which clearly states anyone that isn't your legal next of kin, which would be your children or your legally married spouse mm-hmm. or your parents, those are like the default next of will, next of kin. Right. That a will is one tool that you could use. Right. Um, and the second one they, they mention here is um, just no, having a notary notarize your plans and agreements and lifestyle choices. Mm-hmm. So that you have an affidavit that's been notarized and signed by everyone involved. Um, might not be enforceable, but it does make like a very strong case of like writing down the vision of a family that you're building. And um, and it's also, I guess, affirming in its own way to actually yeah. write that down with somebody. Yeah. Or some persons. Yeah. Or, you know, five or six people or like what, seven or eight. Would... How many people you want to be with. I mean, I think it's important, like... I mean, these are important conversations for everybody to have with, with any, anybody who's that involved in their life, even monogamous or not, like what your intentions are and what you would like done with your stuff. But in a situation where then there's all this complication about the legality of it, I think it's good to be intentional about letting everybody who's involved know what those intentions are and what you would like done and oh, how you'd like it to look. They also talk about adopting a partner or setting up a business trust as other tools yeah. Now, I don't know how to do any of these things, and I'm guessing you don't either. I know how to do a few of them. Oh, fancy. I, um, I have done a power of attorney and, and medical proxies and stuff before. Okay, so those... But obviously, we we are not lawyers. We cannot provide any listeners with mm. with um, legal advice. No. So we're going to signpost you to places to go. Yeah, they recommend checking out a publishing company called Nolo Press, um, which has done carefully researched legal books on aspects of family and business law um, and they have sample forms and step-by-step instructions um, beyond that um, they yeah. recommend and I think it's good advice like if if you're in this type of situation get legal help yeah contact an attorney yeah. but ask a couple of questions beforehand mm-hmm. don't like even just over the phone you can kind of tell if someone's going to be like mm-hmm. mm, I don't really know how to do this or mm, I judge you pretty hard. Right. Um, so, yeah, con- when you're contacting an attorney, make sure you vet them first and obviously go on to any poly groups that are available mm. to ask for any um, recommendations or contacts, I think. Mm. Um, I wish I, like, I did do a lot of research after reading this. Yeah. Because I didn't feel like this book gave enough signposts mm-hmm. and I couldn't find any. Like, I couldn't find, even for the, within the States, which I guess is like the place where there would be maybe like a patchwork of, of things that you could mm. use. I really, I couldn't find like a national firm that was like, like a mm. non-traditional slash alternate family planner mm-hmm. or whatever. And I think it's, it's probably, um, it's probably even harder in, in other countries to find mm-hmm. that. Um, but yeah, I really, I tried, listeners, I tried. Yeah, there's just not much out there yet, so we have to keep figuring it out and then yeah, letting and it, everybody know what works. And if you are a lawyer, um, if you are a lawyer and you are, are able to offer some of this advice, um, 
then you can definitely contact us. Um, do we have an email yet? Yes, we do. I have to let out what it is. So. Okay, so we'll put our email in the show notes. Yeah. And then we would be more than happy to maybe like have an, an episode that delves deeper into these legal things because it is a harsh world out there and we do want to make sure that people, I don't know, get get the help that they need to yeah. set up a lifestyle that they think is um, best for them and their loved ones. Mm-hmm. Um, before we move off this section, like when would you... As a poly person, Sebastian, when would you envisage kind of beginning to talk about legal agreements? Or have you? Hmm. That's a good question. I I mean, I think it's I think it's really dependent on what your relationships look like at the time and also the relationships. I mean, um you know, it, it you know, I think it also depends on how you're approaching it. Like, it's different if you know, you have a, a longer-term partner, then, you know, marriage is an option for at least two people. But oh, my then God, how we do didn't you... even talk about the marriage. That's obviously a legally binding contract oh, you yeah. enter into. <laughs> we, we just but, skipped over marriage. But yeah. so, like, part of the problem is, like, you could be married to one of your partners, you know, but then if, if you have other partners coming in or other long-term partners or if you're a triad or a more than triad or, or some other configuration... You know, marriage will work for two people. And then how do you deal with the... So I think it's really situational. And, and it depends on the nature of each of the relationships and involve some relationships that may come up sooner than later. I think um, that this would only come up in my mind um, when we're talking about children. Yeah. Because I feel like... Like, let's say that... I, I mean, I don't want to have children, but let's say I had a partner who did. Yeah. Um, then... I would, I would yeah. still want to be in some way re- responsible for that child um, in the absence of the biological parent. So let's say I'm dating someone and then they have a child with you, even though I'm not, like, biologically the parent of the child. Right. Um, if something horrible was to happen to, like, both of you, mm-hmm. um, I would feel very strongly that I should be the next person to raise that child. But actually, in reality, especially that I'm not American and especially that um, we wouldn't be married and I'm not the birth parent, that child would probably get taken away right. to, I'm guessing, like a grandparent? I don't know. Yeah. So I think children is a really good catalyst to have this conversation. But maybe it should be happening before that. I mean, I think in, in any relationship, these are things that should be talked about as the relationship develops and you, yeah. you hit them. I mean, I think the other the other thing that... The, the other time I think it's particularly important and it's going to be a little bit of a, a draw towards us, but like in any relationship really like the, the longer that you're together or the more that you're sharing space or intermingling your lives, um, where you, you end up being the, the, like the emergency contact, for example, or the, the, the next person, like having that sort of structured. Mm-hmm. Oh, there be, is actually another situation where that might be applicable. Yeah. exactly in what you're saying yeah. but even more so if you are either not um like if you've come out and it's gone badly with your family or if you're not yeah. out to your family right then that would be right a time when a legal right legal reinforcement is, right would be helpful yeah yeah um which again i think some of these are things that that any relationship has to figure out it's it's just keeping in mind that if you're a poly and there's multiple partners involved 
you have some extra hoops to jump through. Yeah, and also that polyamory can present in so many different ways. So we've got, like, just off the top of my head, we've got, um, like, the open relationship style where you have uh, a relationship and then you open it up. So, like, we might even be married already in that situation. Mm -hmm. You have a triad, so where there are three people in in a relationship that's closed, basically very similar in terms of um, expectations and things as a couple, but with absolutely no like legal way of like structuring that um Mm -hmm. that we're aware of you've got um poly poly solo or solo poly Mm -hmm. where you um i guess almost like relationship anarchy so you don't don't in any way um prioritize or or make your your relationships like number one two three you've got hierarchical polyamory where you have primary secondary tertiary like etc partners um you have polycules where you may share space with somebody who's in a relationship with, with the person you're in a relationship with or mm-hmm. a meta. Mm-hmm. Um, and each of these will probably, would require like a whole different legal thing. Yeah. Wow, the law, you know what? Legal people need to come, uh, uh, like do more. <laughs> there's, right. there's so many people that are not being catered to in that situation. Yeah. Like basically if you're anything apart from monogamous. Yeah, you fucked. Man, this is a really depressing part. Shall we move on? Sure. Okay. Right. Next section. Jumping jet? I I got it. You got it? The oldest profession. I wonder what that is. It's sex. It's sex. (laughs) It's sex. Okay, go ahead. Um, So this is another... This is the end of the chapter. This is another one of their... um, Vignettes? Vignettes. That's the word. Good good work. Thank you. and there, we touched on sex workers before, um, and but, but now not literally. We didn't actually have a sex worker here. Yes, touch, no. unfortunately. But yeah, we're going to be diving deeper into that now. Yes, um, and so they're sort of posing this hypothetical question: like, what what would it look like if sex work was treated as a as a true profession? What if it was legal and regulated, and and you know was not like something that people had to you know that was stigmatized and sort of under the table in a lot of places. Um, you know, so one example, like, they actually liken it to treating it like therapy, you know, which I, I kind of like that as an idea. Like, sex can be good for dealing with certain issues. And, um, you know, you could, if it was treated more like that, like as a, as a service that people went to to deal with, you know, to address certain issues, and it was regulated and stuff, then that would seem to make a lot more sense. Um, and it would really deter a lot of the negatives that come with sex work. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, I think that the first thing, the first thing that I pulled from this was that if sex work was legal and we judged sex workers just like everyone else, um, it would be about a client contracting somebody to provide a service. That's basically mm-hmm. where it is. And then if the client liked the service, then they would go back and they would keep using the service. And if they didn't, they would move on and try someone else. So then the whole standard, like all the brothels would like, um, I don't know, it could be like reviewed. Mm-hmm. Like some kind of Yelp review would be awesome. They don't put that in the book, but that'd be really cool. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> trip advisor, your, your, your sex worker, mm-hmm. um, uh, new sex workers could learn from more experienced practitioners. 
there would be a lower fee service like if you were going to use interns which i think like for example sometimes if you are a piercer body piercer you work in the source bodies as well um you would like have free you would give out free piercings when you're associated with a shop you've done your training in that shop and then you would give out free piercings. Um, it, let's say you really need to get like the septum piercing down. You would give out loads of septum piercings under the instruction of a more experienced pierster until you were prepared. And then you would offer a lower rate until you were really, really good. And then you would offer like the standard rate for, for septum piercings. Right. And that's how you become a piercer right. if you are a body piercer. That's what you would do if you right. were a client, if yeah. this was a client driven industry. If sex work was a client-driven right. industry, brothels would be like piercing shops. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Next up, we are talking about if sex work was legal, it would be safer. It would be safer. It would be safer for not just the sex workers, but for everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The, um, the, so currently sex work that it, okay, before we say this, we should say that there are sex workers that really love their job. There are sex workers that are like, mm, it's a living. There are sex workers that are being exploited heavily. But that's just like every other job in, right. in the market. Yeah. That's the same for like, I don't know, people that... Arguably, that's the same for like a server, right? You have a server that's like, I love my job. I really love interacting with people. Like, I, I thrive on a tip-based economy. Yeah. Love it. Then you have servers that are like, uh, I'm, you know, it's getting me through uni, like... I'm paying my school fees and I'm really just mm-hmm. doing this as a job. And then you've got servers that are being like exploited. Mm-hmm. Like they are in an industry that doesn't really allow them to unionize and doesn't really like, they are on zero hour contracts. They're getting paid less than minimum wage. That's exploitation. So sex work is unsafe, but I don't want to think about exploit- uh, being exploited as being something that only happens to right. women in sex work and not by like yeah. what we're about to say doesn't apply to everyone. But there are issues about consent. There are issues about physical safety in terms of HIV. And there are issues of, like, physical abuse mm-hmm. from either your Joes or your pimps. I don't know what the technical term for them is, the trafficker or the yeah, client. Mm-hmm. If it was legal, you would be able to... Unionize. Yeah, unionize. You would um, be able to have sort of bargaining power and, and be able to set better terms and regulate things more for safety and for things like that it would have a huge effect on mm. on the the ability to like legitimate mm. and legislate against right. abuses of power which include child trafficking rape sexual assault mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, and then the, the last bit they talk about um goes back to what i was talking about at the beginning but i mean sex workers are Wait, we missed a section. We missed a section? Yeah, so... I'll, I'll go. Um, oh. So the... Sorry. Uh, included in that safety, there is also, like, sex workers specifically work with... Um, in a situation where they may be uh, around harmful viruses. So we're talking about HIVs, we're talking about... But we're also talking about, like, like common cold. Yeah. Like, you're interacting with people, like, in kind of a messy way sometimes. <laughs> and that might lead to, like... Communicable diseases, not necessarily just sexually transmitted. If you don't have a health plan because it's not legal work, like you're going to get sick and then you're going to give it to like the next client and you can't like take a sick day because mm. you don't really have like a contract. Like if this was legal, 
everyone might just be a little bit healthier and it would also destigmatize the sexually transmitted diseases. Mm-hmm. Like I was listening to a podcast recently and they were saying that like you don't really get angry at somebody for getting a cold, right? Yeah. Even though they got that cold off somebody and they put their own fingers in their mouth or on their face and ended up getting sick. Mm-hmm. I've never heard of anyone be like, well, they bought it on themselves. All of that touching unwashed fruit. I've never heard anyone say that. You know? <laughs> that touching unwashed. <laughs> but we relentlessly like victimize and like stigmatize people that get sick from having sex. Even though it happens less often. And even though like it's harder to contract. I just, it just blows my mind, like the whole stigma around it. So yeah, the last part on safety is obviously we've got like exploitation and abuses, but we've also got like safer public health, mm-hmm. including sexual health, but mm-hmm. also more broadly. Yeah. Okay, off you go with your next section. Okay, so the, the next section goes back to what you're talking about with the piercers and stuff. Mm-hmm. But sex workers are generally, through experience and such, subject matter experts. Oh, yeah. You know, they, they really know what's going on. They have a lot of practice. Um, they probably and know way more about it than they, than they know, ever could. Probably. Like, muscles that I don't even know exist. Right. You know, they, they, they know how... <laughs> Like to do things and, and how to, um, I mean, one thing they say here, for example, like what if you were having trouble in your relationship with intimacy and you could go to an expert who might be able to help you rekindle that or teach you some new ways to do stuff. Which I, I think it's beginning to be yeah. a little bit like that. Like yeah. in, in some places you can go to like tantric masseuses. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't know. Uh, there's some meditation, couple meditation yeah. workshops which in- involve like nudity um, and um, orgasmic meditation, I think it's called. Hmm. It's beginning to go that way. Yeah. But obviously, you could also just um, hire a sex worker. Yeah. Um, yeah? Okay. So, yeah, in a long time relationship, they could be helpful. Right. I mean, it also talks about how they could help people deal with um, other issues or traumas or things to do with mm, with yes. sex or past sexual trauma or past abuse or anything else tied to that and how having somebody who's knowledgeable and familiar with that and very comfortable with it to help you work through that in one way or another I mean could be a really valuable thing um yeah. you know treating treating sex workers more like therapists or like a clinic or like a they even liken it to like a like a priest like you know they have this really unique experience and knowledge and ability and if we legitimize them and we're able to to use that you know that they could have really powerful impacts on helping people yeah and i think that this is something that actually is missing in like current like ptsd therapies and stuff like that Mm-hmm. is like you get you get terms like body disassociation thrown at you you get you know things about like self-care and like taking time like making sure you're getting outside but there's like people are still a bit uncomfortable about talking about the impact it would have on like your sex life and also your body like bodily pleasure as part of that like your sex life with yourself it is missing in those conversations no one's to blame for it probably it's just not covered in your university degree about like how to how to be a therapist or whatever but it would definitely be something that going to a spiritual healer or a sexual healer mm-hmm. would be very I, I like the 
Our spiritual and sexual healers and guys deserve to make a living for the valuable work they do. Mm-hmm. That's I think you have. I like it. Right. Um, yeah. Do you have anything else to say on that? Because I have a couple of extra things. Go for it, love. Okay, it's so in the very last. Thank you. <laughs> okay, um, <laughs> in the very last section of this chapter, um, they they talk about how sex for hire is legal in some form in, um, well, amongst others. United Kingdom, the Netherlands, Germany, Australia, and New Zealand. And they say here that we note that these countries seem to be managing just fine for letting talented and devoted uh, professionals make a living doing what they do best. Um, and I just kind of wanted to talk about the difference between de- decriminalization and legalization because they're not the same thing. And I think that that paragraph doesn't do enough to separate it out. So let's talk about like, decriminalizing it you're not making it um you're not making sex work legal but you are making it not a crime to engage in and i think that's a really important distinction it's often a distinction that's used in drugs but let's talk about it with sex work so decriminalization would mean eliminating all laws um um that like and prohibiting the state and law enforcement officials from intervening in any sex work related activities and transactions whereas Legalization would be introducing regulation for sex work with laws about like where and when and how that can take place. So, for example, if you think about Amsterdam, Mm -hmm. that is legalization. They've made like places, streets where you can go, you can see the the people who are offering their services and then you can engage them in that space between these hours. You get ID'd. There's a bouncer. It's very legislated. Decriminalized is what we have, I think, in the UK, where it's just like it's not a crime to engage in sex work, but the state just just like not. It doesn't really involve with it. Yeah, like what you do in your personal time with your personal bits, not for the state. It's very British. It is very British and very libertarian. I'm sure there'd be probably some libertarian people that would absolutely love that. Mm. Another example is decriminalization of sex work means that you deprioritize arrest and reduce the interactions between police and sex workers which i think in the u.s is really important because currently criminalizing sex work means that sex workers end up being abused by police Mm. as well as you know anyone else that they might be interacting with if you have like such ridiculous like you know if i got stopped and searched Mm -hmm. and i had condoms on me that would be considered to be sexual paraphernalia in some states, and I could be arrested for being a sex worker. I did not know that. Yeah. That's concerning. Whereas criminal... So that decriminalizing means that you just don't prioritize those arrests. Um, you try and reduce the amount of interaction. Legalizing it would be, for example, having legislation that would require sex workers to keep up things like a registration fee, a license. Um, and this might be really difficult. So, like, let's say... Let's say you were in a place that made sex work legal mm-hmm. and you were like a therapist and presumably there was some kind of like registration you had to do or test. You had to pay like an annual fee. Maybe you had to like license your, your facility. Do you see what I mean? Like you end up with all of these mm-hmm. money worries if this is something you're doing on the side. Yeah. Okay. Um, decriminalizing sex work would be retroactively sealing criminal records and providing pathways for sex workers who want to transition into other employment. So decriminalizing it would be like there would have to be an effort, which is what we talk about with drugs, to like release people or seal records or expunge criminal convictions that were around, mm-hmm. I guess, weed right now is a really big yeah. one in the States. They've been doing that a lot lately. Yeah. 
whereas legalizing would be providing pathways for law enforcement interaction and regulation of where, when, and how. So decriminalization is about removing legislation, but obviously making it legal would be changing legislation. Right. And the final example is to decriminalize, you'd have to provide um, allocated resources for people who have historically and are currently being criminalized. So it's kind of like a um, rehabilitative care. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of resource allocation, if you were going to legalize sex work, it would be allotting those resources to law enforcement to regulate consensual private behavior. So whilst we've spent a long time here discussing what sex work would look like if it was legal, I think there's a another way of talking about this, which is what if it was just decriminalized? What if it just wasn't a crime? That would be good. Good start at least. Would it even be better? Because it's like, it's kind of being a bit more private. I, I guess that's an ongoing discussion, whether you decriminalize mm. or legalize. But I wanted to make sure we went over those differences because... Mm they do produce two very different kind of conversations. Mm. I mean, I guess if it's decriminalized even, it still gives you the options to do some of those things like privately to organize yourself. Because if it's not illegal, then you can organize it as a business or as a, a, in some ways. I don't know legally exactly, but I mean, I don't know exactly. But either way, at least it would be better than it being illegal and people getting arrested for it. Yeah, and, both are better than it being illegal. Um, so yeah. Um, love your local sex workers and um, I think also if there's any sex workers who listen on the off chance they want to give a a voice towards the criminalization versus the decriminalization versus legalization debate that we should totally try and facilitate that'd be really fun yeah all right we're gonna have to give an outro at some point yeah we'll figure that out but that's it that's the that's the end of chapter five battling sex negativity See you next time for chapter six. Woo! Books. <laughs> Books? Books. Pages. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Polly Pages. Um, I've been Claire. I'm still Sebastian. You're still Sebastian. And yeah, join us next week for the next installment of Polly Pages reading, I can't say it, The Ethical Slot by Janet W. Hardy and Darcy Easton. find Polly Pages on Instagram at Polly Pages. And if you have any questions or comments for us, please feel free to send them to polypages at gmail.com. Our awesome intro and outro music is by Mint Green, and you can follow them on Instagram and Linktree at Mint Green Music. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Books. <laughs>